I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from Long Now. And this is the, actually, we got a guy at the beginning of his book tour. The Wizard and the Prophet is basically launched tonight. And big deal, you get to be part of this special occasion when we get to hear a speaker who's not tired of his subject yet. <laughs> <laughs> and this particular speaker has established himself as a science journalist who does not think small or research small or write small. He takes on civilization-sized subjects, planet-sized subjects, and is definitely doing so tonight. Nobody does it better than Charles C. Mann. Thank you so much for the kind words you said about this man guy, and if I ever run into him, I'll be sure to pass them on. Thank you all for coming. I thought I might uh, begin by telling you how, a little bit about how I got involved in this subject, and it was about 10 years ago that I finally read that book by Al Gore about climate change. I'm sitting in a cafe in uh, my town in Amherst, Massachusetts, reading the book, and there's a tap on my shoulder, and it's this woman here, Lynn Margulis, a great biologist um, who lives down the street from me. And Lynn, sort of in her way, as some of you apparently know her, snatched the book from my hand, and she looks at it with great disdain. And because I'm an idiot, I say, what, what, what? And she looks, and there's like a picture of an endangered polar bear or something in it, and she says, you know, mammals. And <laughs> the reason that she says this is that she's a microbiologist, a uh, very famous one, National Academy of Sciences, Crawford Prize, uh, Presidential Medal of Science, you name it. And she's one of the people who's established that sort of 99% of the world's biomass is you know, bacteria and protists and fungi and algae and this sort of thing, and that 99% of the world's evolutionary creativity is there, and that we mammals are basically just epiphenomena. You know, they're cute. She, she would say, you guys are cute, but not much. And I feel... You know, stupidly, I decide to get, defend us mammals, and I say, look, don't you think it would be, like, sad if people got wiped out by climate change? And she looks at me pityingly, and she says, look, it's the fate of every successful species to wipe itself out. <laughs> and the weird thing is, I know what she's talking about. And what she's talking about is basically the second Copernican revolution. Now, the first Copernican revolution is this guy here, Nicholas Copernicus. And he decenters us, as the academic says. He decenters us physically. He says the Earth is not the center of the universe. It's not a special place with its own set of special rules. It's just one of many places, all governed by the same physical laws. It's just a tiny dot among other tiny dots, which all are fundamentally similar. Now, the second Copernican revolution is this guy, Charles Darwin. He says, Homo sapiens, us, we're not the center of creation. We're not a special species. We don't have special laws that apply to us alone. We're just one of many species, all governed by the same set of biological laws. We're just a tiny dot among all these other tiny dots in the complicated tree of life. 
And all the rules apply to all the dots. There's no exceptions. And that's the second Copernican revolution. And that's also why, ever since Darwin, people have been very upset about evolution, fundamentally. It's because we like to believe that we are special. And one thing that Lynn liked to sort of drill into my little head was, no, we are not special. All the rules, all of them, apply to us. And this interview was one of them. Drop a couple protozoa in a Petri dish filled with nutrient goo and watch what happens. And what happens is that this, there's a tiny video, there's only one special effect in this entire show, and it's this one right here. And uh, so I'm going to press this again, and guess what? It's not going to go. I should say, <laughs> I'm here in San Francisco. It's the home of people who believe in the singularity, that artificial intelligence is going to take over. I will believe that when I am able to get a PowerPoint video that I had just turned on uh, uh, like 10 minutes ago to show works. And so if you were here, you'd be thrilled to see this, these guys multiplying and multiplying and multiplying until they hit the edge and they either run out of nutrients or um, they drown in their own wastes. They hit the edge of the Petri dish and very bad things happen. And the second Copernican revolution says, look, this is what all species do, no exceptions, including people, and thinking that we're otherwise is foolish. It means thinking that we're, as Lynn would put it, special. And was well, this true? Well, here's a graph you've probably seen before. It's population over time. And if you look at this part of it over here, it looks like unconstrained exponential growth. It looks like racing to the edge of the Petri dish. And remember, the laws of biology are, this doesn't end well. <laughs> now, it's not just population. There's this huge acceleration in everything you can imagine recently. Here's energy consumption. Here's global per capita income. Now, I should say these are these sort of fake money, but the basic idea is true, but you actually have to go through incredible conniptions to get a graph like this. And the concomitant to that is global atmospheric CO2, which is going up and up. All these things accelerating. Here's global fresh water consumption. This is something that's sort of out of left field, but maybe you in California know about this a little bit. Um, you know, the whole Earth is enveloped by water. One of the things I was surprised by to realize in this book is that the water, of course, is just a thin skim on the surface, and if you bundle it all together, it gets to be something like this. It's a tiny um, sphere, 860 miles or so in diameter, but 97% of that is salt water. You can't, it's undrinkable, it's toxic. Um, if you take the fresh water, it's the second sphere, the 170 miles, and most of that is either locked up in glaciers or buried deep underground or contaminated in one way or another. And so the usable supply of actually accessible, drinkable fresh water is the tiny sphere, the 35-mile sphere. And so when you see this sort of accelerating rise in consumption of fresh water, well, you can see why people look worried. So did Darwin get this one wrong? I mean, right? Or is Lynn Margulis wrong? And if so, how do we avoid hitting the edge of the Petri dish? Now, I'm going to leave this question hanging for a minute, whether it's all possible at all, and, and assume the answer is yes. Then the question is, if we can escape biology, if Lynn is wrong, how do we do this? And basically, when I talked to people, I realized after a while that there are two basic answers that people come up with. And one of them is associated, at least in my mind, with this guy. And I think if I was a technical person or a philosopher or something, I would call it Schumpeterian technophiliac meliorism, but I'm not going to inflict that on you, and so I just call him a wizard, as in techno-wizard. Now, Borlaug is my guy, um, is, a, is an amazing guy. He was born in this very poor farmhouse. That's his one-room schoolhouse up there. He hated the farm. 
um, where he worked like a dog and he hoped to get out of it by being an athletic scholarship, played for, played for the Chicago Cubs. He majors in forestry. He's the first in his family to go to university. He majors in forestry because he likes the outdoors. He graduates in the middle of the Depression, can't get a job, sticks around for his PhD. It happens that his uh, guy is at Elvin Stakeman, a major figure in American science. And equally accidentally, he ends up in Mexico in 1944 on a Stakeman project. Now, the Mexico that he is going to is not the Mexico we know today. It's desperately poor. About two-thirds of Mexicans at some point in the year just don't get enough to eat. And the situation is getting worse. The maize, which you know, corn, uh, which is the, sort of what most people in Mexico eat, the yields the farmers are getting per acre are going down. So that even though they plant a million more acres in 1940 than they did in 1920, there's about a third less um, maize to eat. Things are really bad there. And so what the Rockefeller project that he's working on, Borlaug is working on, is trying to help Mexico with its uh, corn problem. Now, he actually is working on this little side project um, is with wheat, which a few Mexicans eat, and is afflicted by a fungus called um, stem rust, Buccinia graminis, and it's a long-term predator on wheat. It's been around so long that the Romans actually had a god of stem rust that they would try to propitiate, obviously in vain. Um, and so he is this sort of one-man stem rust um, project. And this is, whole thing is an absolutely ridiculous idea. It's the total folly. Borlaug is no Spanish. He's never been outside the United States. He's never done any plant breeding. He has very little experience with wheat. And he's trying to do this without knowing what DNA is. He doesn't know what a gene is, because this is before Watson and Crick. And the wheat genome that he's trying to um, play around with, even though he doesn't know that's what he's trying to do, is way more complicated than the, than the human genome, for example. In fact, as Lynn liked to tell me, plants are just much more interesting than people. Um, if you're a biologist, you know, wheat, for instance, about five times as many genes, and because plants can do things genetically that we can't, it has three complete copies of its genome in every single um, cell, and so it has, roughly speaking, six copies of most genes in every cell. It's horribly complicated to work with, and in addition, because the Rockefeller people are trying not to look like a gringo invasion, they didn't bring any, they don't spend any money, so there's no tools, there's no laboratory, there's no buildings, they don't even have um, fields. So Borlaug is there doing something that's absolutely hopeless with no knowledge of what he's doing. But the great thing is, ignorance is bliss. He has no idea what a fool he's being. So he and two graduate students, Mexican graduate students, go out into the fields and they, and they collect 8,600 varieties of wheat, and then they plant them all by hand and watch them all by hand in this horrible hot weather and bad conditions, and they discover that um, all but four are just wiped out by uh, stem rust, and those four look really terrible. So rather than being depressed, he digs in, and what he does is he comes up with two ideas. And the first is high-volume cross-breeding. Um, and what that involves is taking all those um, 8,600 varieties, and then he gets more, and he plants about 60,000 altogether. You plant them all individually by hand. Remember, he doesn't have any equipment. Um, and then what you do is you snip off this little part on each one of each floret, on each one of those hundreds of thousands of plants standing there in the hot sun, and you emasculate them, and then and then you put, to prevent, them from being, um, to prevent them from being fertilized by pollen, you put these little paper sacks over them, and then you take the other half of the plants and you sprinkle the pollen on them to create this, you put the sacks on it, and you watch it, and you record everything. It's a total nightmare, and they're doing it in awful conditions. Um, and then he makes it even more difficult. With his second idea, shuttle breeding. And what that is, is there's two types of wheat. There's spring wheat 
and winter wheat. In winter wheat, you plant in late fall, and it overwinters, as they say, and then you harvest it in the spring. Spring wheat, you plant in the spring, and you harvest it in the, in the fall. And if, if Borwag had ever gone to school to study this, he would have seen in the textbooks that you cannot breed winter wheat and spring wheat together because they're supposed to grow in such different conditions. You have to grow spring wheat over here, spring wheat over there, winter wheat over there, and that means you can only do one breeding a year. He thinks, well, I'll just do one in spring wheat here, one in winter wheat here, and so in these two completely different areas, um, and I'll get all the conditions, and I'll have, be able to do things twice as fast. And this is literally in the textbook that you can't do this. And in fact, the textbook owner, the guy who wrote the textbook, a guy named Hugh Hayes, comes to him in the middle of this and says, what are you doing? And uh, Borlaug throws a fit and is almost fired. It's a big mess, but he does it anyway. And lo and behold, it turns out the textbooks are wrong. <laughs> and he's incredibly lucky. And so he develops in really rapid speed, twice as fast as you expect, this rust-resistant, super-productive wheat that can grow almost anywhere. And to give you some idea of how poor this whole thing is, these farm equipment, they actually borrowed them from, in this official picture from the Rockefeller Foundation, from a neighboring farm, because they didn't have any of their own, to try and make it look like this is a major enterprise. <laughs> now, is Borlaug happy that he has done this? No. And the reason is lodging. What happens is that he gets this super productive wheat that responds very well to, to fertilizer, and it grows and grows, grows so fast that the stalks become spindly, and then they have these big heads of wheat on the top, and they fall over in the, in the slightest wind. That crimps the stalk, and that prevents nutrients from going through, and also the grain rots on the ground. And so the farmers who eagerly embrace this then can't harvest their, their, their wheat. So he steps in, uh, keeps going, He's um, still working in terrible conditions. He um, gets this Japanese wheat that has been a curiosity for a long time, his dwarf wheat that grows, you know, it's barely this tall. And um, well, you can see how short it is here. These two wheats were um, planted at the same time in the same place. And obviously, one is much shorter. And when this, he's able to combine this and work it out, what he gets is the, what's called the package, the Green Revolution package, which is these hybrid seeds, which are disease-resistant, they're short-strawed. There's something called photoperiod insensitive, which I'd be happy to tell you about because I'm not going to do it now, uh, maybe in the Q&A. And then they respond well to fertilizer, this high-intensity, nitrogen-heavy fertilizer that is made in factories. Um, and then you add in irrigation, and the results are extraordinarily dramatic. Um, here you see the Mexican winter wheat yields, and basically they trundle along until the late 50s, and they suddenly take off, and Mexican farmers are able to grow about four times as much wheat per acre as um, they had been in the past. And this isn't just something for the poor. The same things happen over here. And the reason that the Middle West becomes this big agricultural powerhouse for the world is that these techniques, um, which are, are applied here, and you can see them just absolutely soaring in USDA figures. It's taken over to um, India. This is what an Indian wheat field looked like in 1950, when this famous photograph by this famous photographer, Margaret Burke White. And you see how, um, I, sh I should ask, have any of you ever seen a wheat field? Yes. Okay. The reason is I gave a talk a while ago in, um, in New York City, and I asked this question, and not one person raised their hands. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with sophisticates here, so I'm totally relieved. Okay. You know that this is not a good-looking wheel field, right? Okay. And, <laughs> and the reason is that this is partly deliberate in that the place is so afflicted with stem rust that they plant them very sparsely in the vain hope that, the, um, that one plant won't give um, stem rust to the, to, the, to the next plant. Then the Green Revolution stuff comes in, and the same thing happens across all developing nations. In the beginning in the mid-60s, they absolutely take off. 
And it's very complicated and difficult in a way to describe and to evoke for you what a big deal this is. And maybe this is why people don't, that often people don't even know what the Green Revolution is. Now this is a bunch of um, charts of average daily caloric intake for places like the world, India, and China, and you see them all crawling up by an amount that doesn't seem all that uh, dramatic. But maybe this can help. These uh, dotted lines are what the USDA recommends for um, moderately active women and men, and there's a whole long digression you could go into about whether they're accurate or not, because they're based on Iowa farm boys in the 1950s, and these are for people in India and China who are smaller and slighter of stature, and so forth. But the basic idea is that if you take this and you take an average, you want something like 24 or 2,500 calories for an average person if you can assume that you can blend together women and men. And when you do that, you get something really remarkable happening in the 1980s, which is that the average person in the world or the average person in Asia, for the first time, has enough to eat all the time. And it's unclear how, um, how long it is before this happens, because archaeologists and anthropologists have a big, lively argument about how well hunter and gatherer ancestors did this. So the best I can say to you is that this is unprecedented for thousands of years. The people just simply didn't have enough to eat for basically all of recorded human history, and then it ends here. It's an enormous turning of the page. And there's a sort of a dim recognition of this. It's not in, not in your cl classroom, but you know, you see occasionally articles like this. They always say, Borlaug saved a billion lives and so forth. And these no this number is totally made up, but you get the idea. It was a, it was a very, very big deal. But, Oh, and because this is San Francisco, I'm going to uh, assume that some of you have seen something like this. Okay, great, great. So this is actually what corn looks like in its uh, native, native state. It's uh, Larry's corn. And if you went to Mexico in the 60s and 70s, it would all look like this, thousands of different varieties. It's an enormous genetic treasure house. Agricultural biodiversity is a sort of technical term for it. And what the Green Revolution does is begin to shoulder that aside, and the Mexican grain harvest starts looking like this. This is a picture from Sinaloa. In 20 and so there's a tremendous genetic erosion. Now, that's not so bad sounding, maybe we can put it all in, but then other problems that come from it, and this is all the part where the but, you know, there's a, the Green Revolution's great but, um, I forgot to tell you that, um, is here, it, it, that Green Revolution involves putting massive amounts of fertilizer on it, and so this increases the total amount of nitrogen, um, potassium, and phosphorus around, about 40% of it more or less whooshes off the land and um, either goes into rivers and then into the ocean or it goes up into the air where it um, creates nitrous oxides and nitrous oxide. When it goes into the ocean, um, it's fertilizer still, it causes these huge algae blooms and all sorts of other microorganisms. They die, they fall to the, the floor, microorganisms eat there, they proliferate in the secondary bloom, and this happens so much that there's this creation of this enormous dead zones. There's one in the um, Gulf of Mexico, it's about 7,000 square miles. One last year that was discovered in the Bay of Bengal, or mapped rather in the Bay of Bengal for the first time. It's about three times larger. It's really enormous. Meanwhile, the, one, the nitrogen that's up in the air is interfering with the ozone layer, and so if climate change weren't around, this would actually be a fairly good candidate for our worst pollution problem. Even larger um, negative, if we, if we're, since we're collecting them, is shown here. This is a Diego Rivera mural from 1931 showing um, his idea of what the plantation um, looked like in Mexico, and you see the pale-skinned um, owner lounging at his ease while all these very dark-skinned people are working terribly with the whole thing enforced by the federales. And so that's really the way things were, and what happened was all these poor farmers 
suddenly their land could grow four or five times as much food, it became four times more, or five times more valuable, and it became worth stealing. And this guy here, you wouldn't expect him to do anything else. And so there was this big, massive wave of people who were pushed off their land, and this was actually encouraged by governments around the world because they wanted to industrialize, and what they wanted to have is lots of factory workers and get everybody in the cities so they could work there. And the result was the creation of enormous um, slums in places like this, this is Mexico City. Um, and conditions in these slums um, were just um, awful. This is a vast dump outside of um, Manila that uh, my friend Peter photographed in 2004. It's crowds of kids, many of them presumably displaced farm kids, are picking through the waste 24-7. So this is really a deep negative, and it's the kind of thing that inspired answer number two, and I bet you were forget thinking that I had forgotten that, to tell you that about the second answer. <laughs> so this is William Vogt. Um, a much more obscure figure. I think he's really important. Um, and maybe at the end of this talk, you'll agree with me. If I was going to be technical, I would call him a neo-Burkean processualist glinchverbender. That's an actual philosophical term. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's real. I'm not going to inflict that. You know, I just call him a prophet. Um, he grows up poor in, um, outside of um, rural Long Island. Uh, when he's 11 days old, his father um, decamps with, a, with a, the wife of a local rich person, creating a local scandal that's big enough and juicy enough to actually make it into the New York Times. Um, the family goes on the skids. He ends up in the slums of Brooklyn, but he's a clever lad, and so he gets to go to one of those schools you hear about in, um, in New York where they have for, for uh, smart poor boys, and he becomes the first in his family to graduate from college. He graduates with a degree in French literature in the um, beginning of the Depression, and, um, what he <laughs> and so what saves him is the fact that he's an avid bird watcher. And, um, <laughs> And it gives you some idea how bad things were, that bird watching was actually a career choice that was a good one for him. And the reason is that he's in New York, and, uh, and so he's an, he's an ambitious bird watcher, and so he starts palling around with the ornithologists at the American Museum of Natural History. Um, they get him one job after the other, he learns a ton about um, birds, and he ends up in 1939 here, off the coast of Peru. Um, and what is here, if you can see, whoops, that was supposed to be like that. I'm pushing the wrong button. Um, here we go. This is the Humboldt Current. Um, it's a, if some of you remember your geography from high school, it's a very, very deep um, cold water current that's full of nutrients, and that um, produces tons of food for fish. It's one of the great fisheries of the world. These are anchovetas, which are cousins to the um, anchovy. And, he ends up on these islands here, the Chincha Islands, which are the circled ones. Because these birds have been eating the, the fish there forever and ever, the, they roost on these islands, and the islands turned into giant heaps of guano or bird excrement. And in the 1860s, this became the world's first high-intensity fertilizer and a major source of revenue for Peru. And so in the 1930s, Peru has been mining this stuff. They, they mined it with slaves for a long time. People work in absolutely horrible conditions. Uh, they still like to keep it um, going, and the birds start to die. And they get very upset, and so they call an American ornithologist. No American ornithologist wants to go there because the conditions are so bad, so they send William Vogt and tell him that he is the expert. Um, <laughs> he, like, um, so he goes to this place here. This is a recent photograph. You can see there's not a single um, plant on the thing. It's still a big just heap of um, guano covered with, with birds. Um, he doesn't speak Spanish, he's never had any formal training, he has next to no equipment. Pretty much he's equipped as well as um, Borlaug. And he goes there, and it looks like this. 
This is his wife, the poor woman he dragged there. And um, <laughs> what she's standing on, these are bird nests. Um, there's just a billion of these awful thing, creatures. And um, this is his equipment. This is his bird blind. Um, <laughs> you know, the idea that he had to conceal himself from the birds just seems ridiculous to me. <laughs> but nonetheless, like Borlaug, he does this tremendous work. And what he realizes, um, you know, well ahead of, of most people, is that there's this oscillation that's going on, the Peruvians know about this, between El Nino and La Nina, it's called Enso, um, if you're more technical, and what it means to him, and what he realizes is, when this warm um, water comes in with um, El Nino that causes these rains off the coast, the anchovetos don't like the warmer water, and they move further out, and the birds who are on these islands can't get to them, because they move hundreds of miles further out, and so all the birds die or large numbers of them, because there's the, the fish population drops so much. So he realizes there's actually a limit. You can't have but so many, bir so many birds, because every now and then, El Nino happens and reduces the maximum number possible of birds. And he realizes this is like, you know, he has this epiphanic moment, and he says, this is what nature is. There are these natural limits. It's called carrying capacity. Now, carrying capacity is a uh, concept that probably most of you learned in high school biology. At the time, in 1939, it was roughly about 10 years old. It really was popularized by Aldo Leopold, who was um, sort of a conservationist saint, who was um, Vogt's best, best friend. And it's the foundational idea of the environmental movement. It is the idea that nature only provides so much. Ecosystems can only yield so much, and after that, things go to hell if you take too much. And it's, it's been gussied up and called a bunch of different names. The current one now is planetary boundaries, and people do these elaborate charts. But what, right down to it, there's not that much different from what Vogt said. You know, these things happen, there's a limit, and there's not much we can do about it. We have to adjust to these. We can't surpass them. And if you go through the ecological literature, you see lots and lots of things like this. This was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and they talk about the number of Earths you use because the Earth as a whole has this carrying capacity. Um, they call here um, biocapacity. Vogt put all this together in a 1948 book called Road to Survival um, that is now forgotten, but it's sort of the keystone text of the environmental movement. If you read that uh, Al Gore book or the um, one he did that before that, Earth in the Balance or The Population Bomb or um, Silent Spring or um, Limits to Growth or any of these kind of classics, all of the arguments in there, with the exception of climate change, were anticipated in the um, road, to, road to survival. Now, if you think about this, what Vogt is telling you and what Borlaug is telling you are kind of the opposite of each other. Vogt is saying there's these limits, and we have to obey them, otherwise everybody will lose. Borlaug is saying, no, we can innovate and make more, and that way everybody will win. And this, these two guys met in Mexico in the 1940s, and they immediately clashed, and um, Vogt, in this sort of half-hearted uh, way, tried to get Borlaug shut down. And then they never spoke to each other, they obviously detested each other, um, and so they would sort of take pot shots at each other in, in talks, but not mentioning the other person's name. But you get the idea, these two people saw the same thing. They saw these very poor people in these awfully eroded landscapes, and Vogt looked at it and said, we shouldn't be abusing the land. We should you know, withdraw here. We should learn to live up. We should put on our cardigan sweaters, turn down the thermostat, you know, all those kinds of things. And Borlaug looked at it and said, no, we need to give these people better tools. 
And the argument between them has goes right up to the present. And so let's take a look at the fact, you know, how are we going to feed everybody? Um, in 2050, the theory is that uh, there's going to be about 10 billion people, and we need to provide, and different people have different estimates, between 50 and 100% more food. So how is it going to work? And the wizard's answer is straightforward. It's GMOs, genetically modified um, organisms. And, and when they talk about this, by the way, they don't mean the kind of thing that uh, you guys have probably heard of, like Roundup Ready Soy, which is where they take um, you know, a gene or two from a bacterium and it's found in a waste pond and they insert it in soybeans so you can spray um, herbicide on it. We're talking about something much more grand that bears the resemblance to typical GMOs that uh, a paper airplane does to a Boeing 787. And I'm talking about the C4 Rice Initiative, which some of you may have heard about here at a um, talk about the Long Now Institute from Jane Langdale, who is uh, its director. It's a 20-year, $100 million, 16 lab, 100 PhD effort, the biggest ever in plant science. And it's, the effort is to change the way photosynthesis works in rice. Um, this is you know, to reach into the heart of life and, and effectively create a new species. Now, I'm afraid um, I would like to go into more detail on this. I'm afraid of dragging you through um, um, areas that you, of biochemistry you don't want to go into. So if somebody is a glutton for punishment, I will gladly tell you much more about this in the um, question and answer session. But just for instance, say that they are not trying to just add something to sell patented goo. They're trying to make a new um, species and to give away the results. The thing that I want you to notice, though, is that this is the testing facilities for this. And look at the scale here. All this is about is efforts that only make sense on a huge scale, and they represent a triumph of industrial agriculture, and with all that implies in terms of simplification and scale and focus. And it's all that the prophets hate. So the prophet's answer is the opposite of this. And um, my example of it is a guy named Lloyd Nichols in Marengo, Illinois. And, um, he runs a farm that I visited a, a, a few times, and it is a really a, an amazing enterprise. Um, it's difficult to take pictures for if you're not a professional photographer. I could not interest um, any professional photographer in going out to Marengo and taking pictures for me, so you'll have to put up with what I have. But he plants about a thousand different varieties of crops. This is, he has these huge charts that um, cover all these things. It's an incredible information um, processing scheme to, to um, deal with all of this. And, what he's doing, in effect, is recreating, or mimicking, rather, a natural ecosystem with all the zillions of species in, in, involved. And I should also stress that this is not a low-tech enterprise. Um, he has, you know, for winter production, he has eight solar-powered greenhouses. He has four indoor sprouting centers. It's all based on precision farming, uh, precisely monitoring everything. When I was there, he was testing out these drones, which are connected to his computers. I spent several hours trying to take pictures of the drones. I couldn't do this, so this is a bogus picture that I snatched from the web. <laughs> but this is what the idea is. And what you're getting here is, you know, something fantastically different from a conventional um, farm. And I went to visit Lloyd and his neighbor, Harry Heinberg, who, are, who grows a conventional farm. The guys are quite friendly. But you can see from these charts the, the differences between them. Uh, the Heinberg farm is 1,300 acres, and it just grows two crops, you know, wheat and corn, both of which are GMOs. And it was difficult to get it, but he sort of finally said that he got seven or eight million kilograms per year from them. He uses tons of high-intensity chemicals, and there's nobody there. You go 1,300 acres, the only person working it is, is Henry and his son, who works half-time, both have high school degrees, um, and they get massive amounts of subsidies 
from the uh, government. I mean, I, I started writing them down, and uh, there's, there's many more than this. It's just absolutely extraordinary the number of ways that our government um, supports Iowa farmers and Illinois farmers. Um, now, the Nichols farm, Lloyd's farm, which is next door, you know, it's about half the size. It has more than a thousand crops. He doesn't grow any GMOs, but this is basically, he said, a marketing scheme. He doesn't really have any opposition to them. And he, th he thinks that the, the little bit less yield, um, there's almost no chemical input. Um, and the big difference is labor. He has 11 full-time, 30-time plus part-time employees. Two of these guys have master's degrees. It's a fantastically complex enterprise that he's running. And he's never gotten a dime from the government. Now, it's, I, you know, people have done lots and lots of studies trying to compare um, you know, quote-unquote organic farms with you know, quote-unquote industrial farms, and they always show that the organic farms produce a little bit less. Then the organic people say, oh, you aren't counting the environmental damage from this, you aren't talking about the damage to communities, and so forth. It's very, very difficult to um, compare all of these. But one of the things that seems to me very clear is that if you want to have more farms like this, more farms like the Nichols farm, you're going to have to start bringing some of these things over here. And the economists, when you, uh, if there's any in the audience, are immediately saying, no, 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 the answer is not to have any subsidies at all, and that both of them fight it out in the, in the marketplace. And I can just say, that has never happened in the history of the world. There has never been, um, as, in so far as subsidies have ever existed, there's never been um, a, a, a nation that is willing to let its agriculture be uns, unsubsidized. I don't think that's realistic. And so the question is, what kind of arrangements do we want to have? Because it's quite clear that the cost advantage enjoyed by the Heinberg farm has a lot to do do with these, um, with these government policies. And the government policies, are, of course, are reflections of certain values and, and goals. And so the fights here, which are between the wizards and prophets, are very hard to adjudicate. <laughs> because, you know, the, the wizard over here, I guess Spock is the wizard, um, you know, what they're looking for is big centralized um, facilities that are staffed by as few as possible so as to let everybody else have their individual freedom, individual goals, and to maximize um, personal liberty. Whereas over here, um, Kirk, you know, is always the emotional side, is uh, what they're looking for is community. And what they're looking for is the perpetuation of a way of life. They're looking for a certain idealized relationship to um, nature and a certain feeling that these smaller scale networked enterprises are kind of inherently more democratic and, uh, and, and just better for people than these large technological enterprises. And because these fights are about values, um, they're very difficult to resolve and they're particularly difficult to resolve because they're usually not described in terms of what they're actually about, but they're described in terms of, oh, this is more feasible, this is impractical, and so forth, when the other side simply doesn't care about the feasibility and practicality of the, um, what they're doing. And these fights ripple through almost every environmental issue that I, I've seen, um, and they have so for decades. One of them is energy supply. Uh, the fossil fuel industry really begins in the um, 1850s in Pennsylvania, where it's the first sort of modern um, oil boom town. Um, and it really takes off in 1902 in Beaumont, um, Texas, where they have the, the Spindletop oil field, where they, they, this um, meadow is just convulsed um, with oil derricks. It's an absolutely fabulous gusher of oil that com comes out and totally transforms our um, society. But all the way through, even as the oil industry is coming up, 
there are people who are trying to make solar energy, and they want it exactly for the same reason that solar-type people want to have it today. They want small-scale, networked, individualized things for communities and for, um, and for households. And so even as this is happening, there is this guy named Mouchot who's running a printing press out of this solar thing which has this mirror that boils this water that goes into a steam engine. There's a guy over here, John Erickson. He's actually quite famous as the inventor of the, the guy who designed the US Monitor, which is the first steel-clad um, battleship. And they're producing all of these stuff year after year after year. Probably the, um, the climax of it is the Piero Helioforo in St. Louis um, during, the, during the World's Fair there. 47,000 mirrors. Um, it's so, it creates such intense heat that birds hundreds of feet above it actually just fly over it and drop dead. Um, <laughs> And the idea is, this is what you should have instead of these you know, evil, um, you know, giant centralized um, facilities. But the energy density, as they say, of oil, gas, and um, coal is so much greater than the diffuse energy provided by the sun and wind that it's economically never possible. And there's all these waves of solar um, energy that go right up into the um, 70s, and it never works because the economics of um, the the wizards um, are, so, are, are so much better. Then comes climate change. This is a picture from my friend Peter, um, his backyard in Napa uh, a couple of months ago. This is his uh, perhaps insufficiently afraid wife um, in the standing there. Um, and you guys know, you're in California, you know that this, if climate change keeps happening, this is gonna happen more and more often. Now I'd like to digress for just a minute here. One of the things that we, people talk about when they talk about climate change is you know, there's these people who don't believe in it and uh, so forth. And it's quite curious, because I think neither the advocates nor the people who don't believe it actually have much idea about how it works. And because it's um, sort of an important argument, I'd like to talk for just a minute about how the basic physics of climate change um, works so that if you ever run into your you know, crazy Uncle Fred who doesn't believe in this, you can start quizzing them about their knowledge of basic chemistry, and um, I can guarantee you this is a, a, a way to at least end the discussion. <laughs> so I got my friend Leland, who is a wonderful cartoonist, to draw these pictures. So here you have the sun, right? It's bathing the earth with every imaginable kind of um, light, ultraviolet, microwaves, you name it. Um, about a third of that bounces off um, either the clouds or dust in the air or the surface. There's a little bit absorbed. Notably, the ultraviolet is absorbed by the ozone layer. The remaining two-thirds lands on the air. Excuse me, not on the air. It doesn't land on the air. It lands on the ground um, or um, water or vegetation. You guys are clear with this, right? Okay, great. Um, now, all this different kind of light comes here. Most of it's visible, but a lot of different kinds of stuff. It heats up stuff, it heats up the um, ground, it heats up the uh, vegetation, it heats up the water. They emit infrared light, this one type of light. And so different kinds of light come in, infrared light goes out. We're halfway done. <laughs> so here's a weird fact that was discovered in the 1870s. Um, so this is part of the hoax, right? This hoax that goes back to, it's actually 1869, a guy named Tyndall discovered this. Nitrogen and oxygen make up about 99% of the atmosphere. They can't absorb infrared light. So if the atmosphere is entirely made out of nitrogen and oxygen, all this infrared light would pass right through it and we would be in a snowball. We'd be frozen, okay? But water vapor, which is just about 1% of light, can take it in. And that's a good thing because the water vapor absorbs most of the infrared light and then passes it to the nitrogen and oxygen and we have our present warm Earth. So that's how the, atmo the atmo you know, at basic level, that's how the atmosphere works. So there's this 
Um, now, water vapor doesn't absorb all the, um, the infrared. It lets just a few frequencies, just a few wavelengths through. And this is a good thing, because just enough energy escapes to prevent the Earth from getting unbearably hot. And here you see, here is uh, Leland's um, water molecule giving the side eye to um, this particular frequency, saying, no, I'm not going to absorb you. Now, so the whole system is, works really great. You know, the uh, water vapor absorbs most, most of it, but enough gets through that uh, keeps it at this sort of Goldilocks um, temperature. But here's the bad guy, carbon dioxide. It comes in, and remember this is the uh, water vapor giving it the side eye? It absorbs, by sheer bad luck for us, just those frequencies that water vapor would otherwise um, let through. So now, when you have a lot of carbon dioxide, almost all of it, almost all the infrared is being absorbed in the atmosphere, and it gets hotter. That's all there is to it. There's lots of sort of secondary complications, but there's nothing more to it than that. And it just infuriates scientists when people say, oh, it's a hoax, because this is basic chemistry. If this is wrong, a whole lot of chemistry is wrong. A whole lot of physics is wrong. Your high school textbook, you can just you know, chew it up and throw it away. This is really, really basic stuff. Now, they, of course, because they're terrible communicators, they showed um, diagrams like this. This is the same thing as Leland's nice pictures. <laughs> but you can see, here is, here is the wavelengths. Um, there is the absorption. It goes through here, and here is the carbon dioxide sitting, sitting there. This is a drawn diagram from 1992, which is redrawn from a 1920 spectroscopy textbook. I mean, this is not new. But the big point is, again, if this is wrong, a lot of basic chemistry is wrong, too. Now, I'm going to give you one more attempt to get this, because I really think it's, we should actually understand what's going to kill us if it's going to kill us. <laughs> Imagine that the atmosphere is like a bathtub, and the water pouring in is the infrared light, and you're sitting there all cozy. There's these little holes in the bathtub that let the water come out, and just about balance between the water coming out and the water coming in. Now take some chewing gum, plug up those little holes, one, just one or two of them. It's all you need to plug up, and very slowly, the water will begin to rise, and things will go to hell. That's climate change. That's all it is. And so, again, this is why scientists go crazy. It isn't like, you know, they always say, oh, there's a 97% consensus. There's a 100% consensus on basic chemistry and physics. The only question is exactly how fast that water is going to rise. And that is actually a big question. So, I'm sorry for the digression, but this just infuriates me that people don't understand this. Um, and now we return you to our regularly scheduled programming, <laughs> The Wizards versus the Prophets. Okay, of course, because they fight about everything else, the wizards and the prophets fight about how to fight climate change, and the prophets, of course, like solar power and small-scale installations that are networked across communities and so forth, with power being shunted from you to your neighbor, no giant utilities, no um, giant um, facilities. The um, wizards like nuclear power, which has the smallest footprint for the amount of energy that's um, put out and leaves the most room for nature, and they have clashed, and the solar guys are trying to shut down the nukes, and you're seeing it here in California with Diablo Canyon, where California's um, solar power-obsessed governor is basically shutting down California's um, nucle nuclear plants, much to the distress of um, the wizards involved. So, but the whole question is, since we don't really know exactly how fast the temperature is going to rise, except that it might rise much faster than we like, what are we going to do if we have bad luck? We've already had bad luck that carbon dioxide just happens to sit in there and block, you know, like chewing gum, block the niches. What happens if we cannot change our 
our power generation in the way that we need to either of the wizards or the prophet's way. And you start seeing things like this all the time. This is in um, Santa Rosa. My friend uh, Peter also took this picture here, and he um, reminded me that there was a fire exactly here in 1964. Um, and what climate change will do is make these fires not happen every 60 years, but maybe every 10 years, maybe every five years. And these things will become um, quite hot common. And so what do we do to avoid this? If we cannot make the transition fast enough. Wizards and prophets, of course, have different answers. The wizard's answer is shown here by Mount Pinatubo in this, um, this volcanic explosion um, in the Philippines in 1991. It killed a couple hundred million people, a couple hundred, excuse me, a couple hundred people, and it threw up into the air, way up into the stratosphere, because it was quite powerful, 20 million tons of, um, of sulfur dioxide. This combined with water vapor to make a whole band of um, sulfuric acid, dilute sulfuric acid, and these tiny glittering droplets that covered the earth like a, like a veil. It, these droplets are reflective. They bounce back just enough light to lower the Earth's temperature by a degree Fahrenheit for a year or two. And so wizards look at this and say, well, look, if we really need to, couldn't we do this ourselves? And so they advocate you know, it's called solar radiation management. If you want to be technical, it's geoengineering. And the idea is that you put something up in the air. It doesn't have to be sulfur dioxide. There's less scary sounding um, compounds than that, that blocks just enough of the sun to give us a few more decades to make the transition. And the great thing is, go to a meeting of like the Sierra Club, you know, the, the Profit Central, and propose this and watch people go on tilt. And the reason for that is they think this is completely insane. They see, you know, the, it's dealing with carbon pollution by more pollution. It's completely nuts. And if you're going to do it, let's do it and harness natural um, patterns. And you see from them, from the profit side, you see, why not do something like this? Here is this um, large ecosystem, Sahara, which is uh, not particularly productive right now, has been very productive in the past. Why can't we return it to the past state? And the way you would do this is by planting trees. Um, you get these sort of idealized um, drawings. You plant trees. You have desalination plants along the coast that provide the, the, the water. The trees grow. They change the climate underneath them in a relatively well-known phenomenon. And trees are natural carbon-eating machines. Um, you can actually grow these, and the theory is in a few decades, you could reforest a significant part of the um, Sahara. That would draw down a tremendous amount of carbon dioxide. The, uh, the leaves and uh, branches and dead trees could be used to fuel the desalination plants. Um, and then you could probably plant uh, tree crops in there and return this area into a much more productive state. And so if you're going to do geoengineering, why not do it the um, natural way? And the point I'm making here is not to advocate either side or even to, uh, although I am in fact making fun of either side, that's just to entertain you guys. It's a very serious I issue, and I probably shouldn't be doing what I just did. Um, but the point about it is all these are not crazier than anything else I've been t um, talking about. What you're doing here is trying to make a vision of the future that is consonant with your values, and just as the um, people involved in geoengineers are. And so really the question is less about practicalities, which is what the um, discussion is often mired in, and much more about what kind of world do you, do you want to live in? What kind of world do you want to create? Both of them involve leaps into the unknown. Both of them involve technical problems that we don't know how to solve. But if we're going to do this, you know, it'd be much better off to sort of figure out what kind of world do we, do we want to live in. Now, Lynn, if you remember here, 
thinks this entire thing I've just been telling you is ridiculous. If she were here, she would be rolling her eyes, like audibly. I mean, it would just, you know, you'd hear them. And because she was saying, you guys are trying to beat Darwin. It doesn't matter whether you're a wizard or a prophet. It's doomed. She'd be hooting with laughter at this idea. And you, I think you have to take this seriously. You know, is, are in fact we doomed and is, does Darwin apply? Do we, are we able to escape this? Are we special? Um, what is the evidence for it? Well, this is the best empirical case that I can think of for us being special and Darwin and having to roll back that second Copernican revolution a little bit. This is um, the world in 1800. It's a political map. As you can see, it looks quite different from today. But this sort of political map disguises some of the biggest differences of that world of 1800 from today. In that world of 1800, slavery is universal across the world. There may be a few countries without it, but basically, slavery, which is one of the foundational institutions of human society, is everywhere, as it has always been. The oldest legal codes we know of, the Code of Hammurabi, for example, they're all about buying and selling people. It is absolutely basic and fundamental to human society. Yet, in a few decades, in the 19th century, we basically got rid of it, and there is no society anywhere in which slavery is legal and accepted. Certainly slavery still exists. Uh, the International Labor Organization says there's 20 million slaves or something like that, 24 million maybe. But the point is that the difference between 1800 and now is enormous. Now think also about women in that world of 1800. There is no place in there where women, oh, can decide really who they want to marry, except for maybe certain um, aristocratic circles. They can't go to college um, or get educated. In most places, uh, women can't own property. They're not allowed to initiate divorces. You pretty much name a thing that you're supposed to be able to do in society, and they can't do it. And this is not an accident. The suppression of women has been fundamental to human society for as long as we know. There's these sort of rumors that there were matriarchal societies, but ar archaeologists have never seen them. Basically, women have gotten a raw deal for as long as we can think of. And yet, in the last couple hundred years, this has changed. Obviously, today, you know, we know that it has not changed enough and, and so forth. But the point is, it's not like it was in 1800. Very many different things have happened. Equally important, this was a world convulsed by violence. The amount of violence that was going on in 1800 is, by today's standards, absolutely horrific. And yet every study that has ever looked at these things, so far as I know, has concluded that the amount of violence has gone down, down, down. Even when we think about you know, horrific things like what's going on in Syria or um, in the Horn of Africa, the amount of violence in the world has just plunged over the last um, few hundred years. There's lively argument about whether hunters and gatherers were peaceful or, or, or violent. So let's just say that we've had this extraordinarily rapid decrease in violence over the last couple of, of centuries from levels that were enormously high for thousands of years. All of this is embedded in here. And what that tells me is that human society can change enormously, can change actually fairly rapidly in something that was totally fundamental to it, like slavery, the suppression of women, or um, armed violence. And so when I look at these environmental challenges, can we feed everybody? Can we provide enough water for everybody? Can we um, deal with climate change? Can we provide energy for everybody? Lynn's answer is no, it's not going to work. We're going to hit the edge of the Petri dish. And she might be right, but all I can say is, if we did all these other things that I just talked about, to be beaten by climate change would be profoundly disappointing. It would mean that, all right, she's right. We're not a special species. I hope that's not right. Thank you.
you have impeccable slides. God damn. That's the nicest slide. thing anybody's ever said to me, oh, I think. Man. I'm working on a deck now for Wisconsin, and I'm just envious. Um, by the way, I should mention this really is a book launch tonight. There is signed books out in the lobby, and after this talk, after a little conversation here, um, he will be in the lobby signing more books just for you, okay? Bye, 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 right? All right. <laughs> Shameless um, commercialism raises <laughs> its ugly head, right? You raised slavery at the end of that as something that changed pretty quickly. Was it prophets who made that change or wizards? An excellent question. And this is the kind of thing that um, there is, of course, if you ask economists and historians, mm -hmm. there are, you know the joke about the one-armed economist because mm -hmm. you don't you want the right, other hand. Right, right. 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 There's no, yeah, you don't want an economist. So there's one school of thought that says that slavery essentially became outmoded from the Industrial Revolution. That's the wizards. Mm -hmm. um, the other thought was, no, it had to do with the way human beings act. And, and what they believe, and it took people like Wilberforce, the Darwins, for, for example, to, and the abolitionist movement to do this. And it took them a, you know, a few decades of sustained effort. So, it, so I think that this is one of those historical records where both sides can, uh, can feel quite sure uh, that they were responsible for this. Do they, yeah, do they give each other credit? Or yeah, yeah, no, of course they don't give each other credit. <laughs> so what's your sense then of taking that as the model, what is the combination of wizardry and prophecy that uh, might get ahead of climate change in the next century or so? Well, I think that, um, see, I have a sort of a, a slightly weird take on this. I mean, it's quite common to, you know, people I know to open the paper and sort of moan, right, that things mm -hmm. are not moving fast enough, and it's obviously understandable why. But you sort of, I think you sort of have to remember how fast things actually move. Mm -hmm. um, uh, take the, uh, we have the, um, the Food and Drug Administration, which was established by the, uh, the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1939, I think it was. Um, it started with the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906. Mm -hmm. And this was a decade-long battle fought in Congress about whether ingredients should be listed mm -hmm. on the Not whether it was safe or effective. You could, you could actually sell arsenic as long as it was labeled. And the, the, the forces of commercial, um, of the patent medicine industry and so forth, beat back any attempt to make sure they were safe. And so, um, and this was a huge fight. Mm -hmm. Finally, they had to list it honestly. And then it went on. And finally, there was in 1938, the elixir um scandal, in which like 100 people or something died from something that was clearly labeled. <laughs> and um, the FDA was born. So just think about this. Mm -hmm. The idea that you have to sell medicine that is um, safe mm -hmm. and is what took decades. Mm -hmm. So by that standard, I think we're reacting to climate change with extraordinary speed. <laughs> it, it may not be fast enough, but you have to remember, yeah, this is the scale in which actually things... And then, it's even worse, the federal government first allowed to determine whether they were effective in 1962. Hmm. So, pretty okay. good for climate change, huh? We're moving faster than not poisoning people. And then the question is fast enough. So yeah. the um, and there's a little bit different stakes. A few dozen people who take the wrong medicine and die. I know, but it's terrible. just an example. Versus that, that, everybody. <laughs> you know, right. So we have a gun to our head, which right. is probably why we're moving a little faster. You did a nice, uh, actually quite illuminating little primer on climate change there and what's happening in the atmosphere. And what's your sense of is. 
the word crisis comes up a lot with climate change. And I think it's partly reflective of people taking it very seriously, which sounds right. And partly people thinking it's extremely urgent and you occasionally hear, if we don't get uh, parts per million of carbon dioxide below 400 or whatever number you set by a given date, then it's all over. And so this whole urgency thing cuts in and it's kind of usually put in sort of agenda terms. Do it my way, do it fast. You know, stop everything else and just do that. Do you buy that frame of uh, we've got a rush? Because both prophets and wizards say hurry, yes. hurry, hurry. Hurry, hurry, hurry. And I do think that there is sort of, you know, see every uh, crisis is an opportunity. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a, you know, somebody like Naomi Klein who hates um, capitalism says you have to do it, do all this, and you have to get rid of capitalism because, you know, of the crisis and so forth. And of course, conservatives hate that. Um, so the, the crisis is kind of a, 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 a double-edged uh, thing. And it, what it bothers me about it is that, um, do you know what climate sensitivity is? Do you guys? Yes. Yeah, okay. Well, there's, I'm not, actually, that was a, there's, people don't, probably mostly, sorry. <laughs> so some of you do. But climate sensitivity is a way of saying if you put so much more carbon dioxide in the air, what will happen? Right. And it's typically said we're doubling it. Right. So, uh, you know, in 1880 or thereabouts, there's something like 280 parts per million, which is not very much, and so you put 560, and what happens? And this question was first asked in 1979, if you double it, what happens? Um, and uh, by a, a U.S. government report, and they came up with, um, I think it's uh, with between 1.5 degrees C warming and 4.5 degrees C warming. And since then, the IPCC, the International um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has done five major reports, and each of them has attempted to assess um, climate sensitivity, what happens if you double this. And in every case, the answer has been the same. The reason is that these secondary effects that are not discussed in this are so complicated that it blurs um, the, the image, and in fact, the more we know, the more complicated it gets. And, there's a, and the, so the fact is that 1.5 degrees C, most people would say, most economists would say, that's not great, but we can deal with it, and probably economic growth will be better, and so people's lives will be better off. 4.5 degrees C would be a total disaster. And so this is the problem with uh, climate change. That roughly means a two-thirds probability that it's in that range, which means there's a one-sixth probability that it's practically nothing happens, or it's an utter, total disaster. And so the way I would uh, t typically think of it is, suppose I told you you had a one in six probability of something really bad happening to your house, like a burglar coming in. You would probably feel some dispatch about going and getting insurance. Mm -hmm. And um, so this is what the, the we, is really uncertain, but we face these risks all the time. And relatively reasonably, we um, hurry to get some insurance. Uncertainty is its own hazard. Yeah, okay. and in fact, the uncertainty makes action, I think, more um, necessary. Fair enough. Kevin Kelly asks, what happens when a modern society does not subsidize agriculture? Wouldn't it just raise food prices and then things would sort out with the problem? Well, I think that that's, um, since there is no modern society that has ever not subsidized agriculture. We uh, have no idea. We have no idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I also think that's unlikely. It's a little bit, because clearly the agricultural lobby in every type of society we have, um, you know, nominally socialist, nominally capitalist, is, is 
the lobby is just hugely powerful. And how is that the case? I mean, it used to be everybody was, almost everybody was farmers. Right. So the lobby was actually a majority of people right. representing their thing. That's no longer the case. Are the robots controlling the, that are doing, you know, large-scale well, agriculture, are they well, now pushing... So if you're an economist, you would suggest that sounds great because it says that there is nothing inherent about this that mm -hmm. in you, and it's just a hangover from the past. And um, maybe so, but uh, up to now, the, uh, the, the, the control of lobbies over, over this... Is nobody been... even running models? What would happen if, you, if the... Well, know, of the, course the... they run models, and, mm -hmm. and if, you're a, if you're a libertarian, you show how everything would be really great and, uh, in your models, and if you were... Because these assumptions in, involved are um, the absolute stripping away of mm -hmm. every um, subsidy. Well, what is a subsidy? Is unemployment insurance a subsidy? Mm -hmm. You know, is uh, depreciation mm -hmm. a subsidy? You know, uh, what are you taking away? Are you, what about the um, subsidies for people's houses in the mm -hmm. terms of, um, of mortgages and, and, and mortgage and so forth? Or the special low rates for mortgage insurance if you're a farmer and, and it goes on and on. So what are you taking away exactly? You're taking away stuff that's so embedded into um, mo modern societies that it, it seems to me a kind of, I mean, it's a really good question, but it doesn't seem answerable. Isn't that a wishy-washy answer? I wish I could give you a better one. Well, you know, come on, libertarians. Get a state or an island or a seastead or some goddamn thing <laughs> and run the experiment. We all right, right. This is something that Long Now could raise money for, probably. <laughs> what a thought. <laughs> the floating clock. I mean, there's a whole world there. <laughs> Andy Lee asks, uh, tell us about C4 Rice. Uh, some years ago, thanks to you, mm -hmm. we had Jane Langsdale here talking about C4 Rice, and you're, you were stoked about it then, you're stoked about it now. Well, well these big agriculture projects, they're really interesting. Um, I just think they're, they're really marvelous explorations of, um, of, of science. You know, it, of course it could be that uh, our societies don't want to, want to do this, but the knowledge involved is in the, the ambition is just amazing. And so you have these various you know, mega projects, if you call it, in the, in the scale of you know, plant science or mega projects. Um, you know, there's efforts to make um, self-fertilizing corn, which would be, you know, soybeans have um, nodules that have these uh, symbiotic bacteria on them, and the idea is could you transfer this to, to corn? Um, there's wheat that might be able to grow in saline soils, um, which are particularly important as uh, if seawaters rise and they mm -hmm. filter in for coastal communities. And all these involve these fundamental rearchitecting of the effect. So C4 is, um, I'm really interested in it because um, I didn't realize that they didn't tell you the truth about photosynthesis when you learned about it in sixth grade, <laughs> and that, which is that photosynthesis sucks. Um, it's like batteries. You know how batteries, you know, all they tell you about this in chemistry, they don't tell you how crappy batteries are and, and how difficult it is to improve them. Photosynthesis depends on an enzyme, which is a biological catalyst called Rubisco. Um, it's actually got a huge long name, and Rubisco was deliberately coined out of different letters in it to sound like a breakfast cereal. Um, <laughs> this is true, it's really true. It's designed to sound like a breakfast cereal as a joke, and then caught on. Um, well, and happening, right? And, uh, Enzymes are, are like uh, pedestrians, you know, they're catalysts, they're like pedestrians who go out into traffic, cause huge accidents, and then run back unharmed themselves to go out and cause the next accident. And um, so what Rubisco does is it grabs carbon dioxide, in regular plants, it grabs carbon dioxide and shoves it into photosynthesis, and, that, the carbon, and that's where you get the carbon from to make the carbohydrates that are at the basis of um, photosynthesis. Um, a typical enzyme catalyzes a few thousand to about 10,000 um, reactions per second. They're incredibly busy. Rubisco is a couch potato. Um, it does two or three per second. 
Um, you know, it's, it's, it's like the worst enzyme ever. Um, and, um, it's, and then even worse than that, it's like Mr. Magoo. Um, because what it does is it grabs carbon dioxide, and carbon dioxide is a linear molecule with, you know, um, the carbon here and two oxygens here. And oxygen, of course, is also a linear molecule with two oxygens here, and it can't tell the difference between them. And so about 40% of the time, it depends a little bit on the plant, it grabs the wrong molecule and tries to shove oxygen in it, and the, and the cellular, there's this whole elaborate cellular mechanism to go, oh, no, we don't want this, and to kick it out of, this, out of, out of the cell. And so it's lazy and incompetent. Um, and evolution has never improved it. <laughs> right. So, in fact, I did this, uh, I talked to these guys, uh, biologists, and, 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 you know, we'd have coffee with them afterwards, and they'd just say, oh, I hate Rubisco, it's just awful. <laughs> and, and, and to make up for its inefficiency and incompetent, plants make a huge amount of it. Um, in many plants, about 50% of the proteins in their leaves are Rubisco. And what that is, Rubisco has a ton of nitrogen in it, and so when you're putting fertilizer in plants, what you're essentially doing is helping them make Rubisco. Mm. So, if you could get some kind of end run around Rubisco, you could, you know, in addition to the plant uh, growing faster, you could actually stop having to fertilize so much, which, which would be a tremendous thing for all these environmental problems. So, so the idea is that plants about 60 times have evolved, and because biologists have you know, no naming sense, they're unlike me with wizard and prophet and catchy stuff, they don't do that. Um, and so they call it C4 photosynthesis. Um, and C4 photosynthesis is where you um, have special cells that what are wrapped... What plants do C4? Oh, corn is an example. Okay. Regular, re but here, regular synthesis, sugar, regular photosynthesis is... Yeah, mm -hmm. C3 is mm -hmm. the name for it. Um, and you can see it if you ever, any of you ever have mowed your lawn. And um, your regular bluegrass is C3, and then the crabgrass grows immediately after mm -hmm. you mow it. And, you know, three days after you mow it, the crabgrass is up here, and the, and the other grass is growing just so much. Crabgrass is C4. Regular grass is C3. And the way it works is they um, have another enzyme that grabs the carbon dioxide and then stuffs it into these special cells um, that are wrapped around the veins. And these are where the Rubisco is, and it does its work. And it's in this environment that's practically oxygen-free, mm -hmm. so it can't do the Mr. Magoo bit. Mm -hmm. And um, it's about 40% more efficient. And since you're dealing with something that's like, there's one estimate that I saw that's 1 40,000th of a percent efficient. Mm -hmm. Any increase is a huge deal. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is to, because this has evolved independently about 60 times, the idea is that most green plants must have precursor genes, you know, sleeping genes, dormant genes, what have you. And the goal here is to genetically engineer rice with its own genes mm -hmm. um, and um, to make it into the C4 plant that is already sort of there. Um, if they can't do that, they want to take very closely related genes from another species that's easier to work with for technical reasons. But that's mm -hmm. the basic idea. And so you're not dealing with a single gene here, you're dealing with an entire complex of genes and creating a fundamentally new species. And that's really amazing. It's called fucking with nature. <laughs> that, that's the technical term. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah and, you're, you're really reaching into the heart of this. And, 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 and then there's a whole question. So why are profits down on that? I mean, you know. Well, that, it's quite interesting because they don't like the idea of, I mean, you know, there's, there's sort of what I think of as kind of bogus reasons where people seize on, oh, this report that it's, it's safe. It's, it, I just don't think that any of that is, it holds water. Because the same people who are typically saying, look, the IPCC, you know, the scientific experts say that uh, climate change is happening, sometimes go around and saying that all these um, medical bodies and uh, scientific bodies that have studied genetic engineering um, and find it safe, they're all wrong somehow. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think you have to go with the science both ways. 
what I think they're fundamentally, and this is a much better argument, is they're fundamentally against industrial agriculture, which they see as basically destructive and not the way to go. And so this is, this is propping along a system that was a mistake to begin with. Mm-hmm. You haven't had a lot good to say about profits. And yet the book wait a minute, sort of... I don't mean to, I, I, wait, wait a minute. You I mean, haven't had a lot to good to say. You know, I, no, I don't. But there's, you know, I... I, I, I what is it? <laughs> but your book is sort of saying, the wizard and the prophet, and the wizards are good at some things, but they're blind about other things, and the prophets are sort of blind about some things. Well, I have to adjust my talk. Yeah, sense of limits is important to have. That's how you avoid the edge of the Petri dish. But it's been kind of hard on the prophets most of this evening. So let's I, hear wait, some good things true? about prophecy. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, first, um, and most important, is that the prophets are clearly right. You know, the earth is... <laughs> so the earth is finite. Mm-hmm. The earth is finite, right? They are right about this. The question is, are they relevant? That's the real argument. Because if the limits are way, way out there, mm-hmm. then, you know, where human beings are, it, we aren't going to hit that. Okay, so you just undercut that praise for... No, I didn't. No, no. Because it's, 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 you know, when people have these planetary um, limits and so forth, look, these are not, you know, these are, these are for real, possibly. Okay, so you're saying they're sort of large and general and wrong and specific? What no, no, no. I'm just trying to say these are very... In general, they're obviously right. Mm-hmm. You know, if the, if the world had 100 billion people in it, it's very difficult to imagine that, uh, mm-hmm. that this wouldn't be a dreadful mistake. Mm-hmm. It's not at all clear what happens between 7 and 10 billion people. Mm-hmm. It could be that the you know, people who are measuring the Earth are right. I'm skeptical about that because this is a fantastically difficult thing to assess. You know, the factors involved are just mm-hmm. enormous. I mean, we're just, you know, think how difficult those climate models are, and now you're adding in everything else involved with life. Mm-hmm. And also, the ecological interactions themselves are extraordinarily difficult to measure. Just take the fact how much carbon dioxide do trees absorb. Mm-hmm. And the answer is, all those measurements were done in the 1960s with boreal forests, which are the kind of forests in Canada in Siberia. We don't really have a good measurement of what's going on in the Amazon and so forth. It could be much lower, it could be Mm -hmm. much higher. So I think it's very important for wizards to keep in mind that sooner or later the profits are going to be be right. Mm -hmm. And they haven't done enough science yet. Well, yeah, you need more science. And and I think the best uh, prophets say would would totally agree with this. And this is true with almost every major biological factor you care to, to name. Um, for example, the, the, the came, big thing that came out last year, I was really fascinated by this, is that uh, there's this, there are these methane hydrates that line the, um, the coast, mm-hmm. and which is basically when the um, microorganisms, you know, algae and so forth, die, they um, fall down to the o- ocean shore, they rot, and they lose methane. And when the, t- when the conditions are right, when it's cold and there's enough pressure, they produce these structures called methane hydrates that sit down there. On, on the on the on the Which bottom, is ice that is flammable. Is yes, it's call. flammable ice. They, mm-hmm. they they call it. And there's just a fantastic amount of this stuff. Mm-hmm. If all of it went into the atmosphere, that would be tremendously bad because methane's a potent climate change. Oh, yeah, we're going to mine it first. Right. Well, the, or, but people also say they could mine it for natural gas. Mm-hmm. And there's efforts by particularly in Japan and China and the south. And in fact, a big part of the conflict that they're all having in the South China Sea is because there's a ton of methane hydrates there. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's the. And they would. And, I thought it was all military. 
No, it's all about oil. And this is the sort of thing that, uh, well, not oil, oh, but natural gas. Yeah, okay. um, and this is the kind of thing that uh, you know, fuels sort of paranoid uh, people mm -hmm. saying that all um, conflicts everywhere are about oil and natural gas. Um, but this one really is. And, um, <laughs> and so naturally people in Norway, where mm -hmm. there's a ton of methane hydrates, are worried about this, and the ocean is warming up, so they wanted to see what was, what was happening. Mm -hmm. And what they discovered was indeed some of these methane hydrates are coming up, and that's adding to climate change. But also, that is causing you know, upward motion, the rising temperatures in there, and that is bringing up nutrients. Nutrients! Nutrients, yes. that, and there's so much photosynthesis. Humble to, current. Yeah, yeah humble current the type stuff. There's so mm -hmm. much photosynthesis taking place that it cancels, more than cancels out the effect of the methane hydrates. And uh, now, look, that's just one thing. Mm -hmm. That's just one thing. It doesn't mean that climate change is not going to happen or any, anything like that. But it's a perfect example of how little we understand about these fundamental biological um, um, phenomena. And the prophets are totally right mm -hmm. to remind us about, uh, 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 about them. Where they're wrong, I think, in my opinion, is being absolutely certain of this. And then this is, again, about a mat matter of how do you manage uncertainty. So Norman Borlaug was really interested in what was called the population problem. Yeah. And my old teacher at Stanford, uh, who's still around and still arguing, uh, Paul Ehrlich, was also really interested in mm -hmm. the population problem. And the stances they took were kind of prophet versus wizard in a sense. Mm -hmm. And then Barlog was basically saying, get people enough food and they'll have fewer children. And uh, Paul was basically saying, the only way people are going to stop having so many babies because it's so much fun is to basically have laws that prevent them from doing it. And if necessary, put sterilants in the water supply. Uh, which is, I suppose, a kind of a technical solution, uh -huh. <laughs> which has never been deployed as far as I know. Population is leveling off rapidly mm -hmm. by mid-century, somewhere between 9 and 10 billion maybe, and then mm -hmm. stays there, maybe even goes down. Who won? Who made that happen? The prophets or the wizards? In a certain way, neither. Okay. Um, I mean, the big prophylactic turns out to be educating women. <laughs> and... Um, this is one of those uh, tremendous win-wins, right? Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. it's obviously better for everybody, mm -hmm. you know, especially, especially for, for women, but mm -hmm. you, you're, we have all these problems. To deliberately ignore the talents of half the human race seems totally idiotic to me. Um, and uh, so it's a total win-win, mm -hmm. and it also turns out that women who have more oppor opportunities tend to not want to have as, as, as many children, because they, they have children, they want mm -hmm. to do and so, Neither um, side in this really took enough thoughts about social science. And I would, uh, the criticism I would make of both of them, uh, mm -hmm. both of these sides, is they're much too oriented around the hard sciences, particularly biology, and not interested enough in ecology, not ecology, excuse me, in economics, mm -hmm. in history, in um, anthropology, and all these other things that um, really change the way um, human beings are. And for example, Borlaug, bless his soul, a tremendously decent guy, mm -hmm. really wanted to help the poor poor, really wanted to help these people that he was working with, spent his entire life with poor farmers, never understood until mm -hmm. the day he died that unless they had better institutions to protect their property, hmm. that tons of the people that he was helping would be ripped off. Oh, that's interesting. Hmm. Well, he was good on if they had enough food that they uh, could start thinking longer term about everything, including yeah. what yeah, size well, families they but wanted. That's a pretty big deal, the, uh, losing your land. 
The other thing that happened there with this sort of industrialization scaling up of, of agriculture mm -hmm. in the Borlaug mode is that you needed, you didn't need seven kids to run your farm anymore. Mm -hmm. In fact, you were just comparing those two farms and yeah. that you looked at and one was... So, a, so I've, I've actually waffly, I'm waffled back and forth on this because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you're a Borlaugian, and I don't use that word actually very much because it sounds too much like, you know, a Star Trek alien, you know, Captain, uh, the Borlaugian ambassador, you know. Um, so uh, that's why, another reason to use Wizard of Profit. So if you're a wizard... <laughs> Resistance is feudal. Right, 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 right. Uh, if, you're, if you're a wizard, you look at this and say, look at those people working on the farm. They could do so much better. They could do so many different things. Um, now I think, like, wait a minute. These people are very hard to replace by robots. You know, it's, it's just not going to happen very fast, mm -hmm. oddly enough. It's, it's, um, the, the, uh, particularly these complex farms, the amount of mechanization, even efforts to study mechanization is next to nothing. Mm -hmm. There's a few companies in Germany. Uh, Davis is just be beginning. But the, for the foreseeable future, we're going to need a lot, of, a lot of people. If some of these, so you think like, well, if some of these subsidies were swung over and they subsidize labor mm -hmm. as opposed to uh, <coughs> m machinery, hmm. You might get something really dramatically different, and maybe what was a bug might actually be a feature. Ooh, there's one for the socialists: subsidized labor. And, you know, the, the well, we state, whether the libertarians right, have no subsidies at all. Well, you know, if we're going to subsidize, you know, they would say profits would say. I think, you know, and it's hard to argue. Look, you're subsidizing machinery. Why don't you actually subsidize people? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. If you're going to do this, right? I don't think is that a crazy argument? I'd be interested to see how that. Our argument plays in different parts of America as you yeah. travel down. Well, you know, here's something I would suspect. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, uh, there's a ton of people who are um, um, farmers that I've met in the Middle West and mm -hmm. uh, around, and um, without exception, they don't really like the fact that they can't pay living wages to their, their workers. Yeah. And if they had some help with that, I don't think there'd be a lot of uh, resistance to it. Well, pour it on. I like that. Here's a question from Benji. What would Volk and Borlaug think about Elon Musk's idea to have humanity be multi-planetary? What would they think about Elon Musk anyway? <laughs> it's sort of like which Elon Musk, right? Say um, more. Yeah, you know, the, 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 the solar one or the space one? Yeah, the solar the one or the space one. one. I mean... You know, Borlaug, I think, would, would, would have been all for the space program. You have to imagine that he would have. But the idea of, of getting massive numbers of people out there, that's pretty formidable, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, I, I kind of think probably both of them would have said, okay, that's for the far future. In the near future, let's uh, worry about getting enough, people to eat and getting enough for people to eat and maintaining the world's ecosystems. That's a fair question, a kind of a long now question. Who's more comfortable thinking long-term, do you think, generally, wizard types or profit types? Probably profit types. I think they think in terms of long-term ecological um, cycles. Mm -hmm. But, of course, so many of them now think purely in terms of short-term <laughs> political advantage. Um, you know, when they have these fights. Uh, I, I, I had this argument with, uh, with a full-blown full uh, profit about... Uh, Bill McKibben's um, effort to... There's a full-blown prophet, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was, in fact, him. Um, <laughs> that was sort of back-ended. Uh, anyway, um, about the, um, the pipeline, mm -hmm. because the National Academy of Sciences did, what I, as far as I could tell, a pretty good report saying they would have really negligible impact on climate mm -hmm. because that the, um, the uh, tar sands would just be routed through um, trains, you know, and, and there would be other ways of, of, of doing it. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm actually, 
is pretty much against the pipeline because native people um, don't want it crossing their land. And uh, I think uh, you know we should probably give these guys primacy and uh, mm -hmm. al allow that to happen. Um, so, this, but that's separate. And uh, you know, if they don't want it crossing their land, why are we forcing it down their throats? Is kind of how I feel about it. Um, but that's personally. But I went, leaving that aside, I went to uh, Bill and you know I talked to him. I said, you know, why are you picking this? Mm. You know, why not pick? coal plants, which mm. are doing immediate harm to uh, this. And the back and forth, and the argument that, the answer that I got was, um, as I understood it, and maybe he wouldn't uh, agree with this, is that this is a political fight to the death, and we have to show that we can shut things down, that we have to have um, political power. Okay, I hate that. Uh, <laughs> so that's, that's, that, that was actually part of it, that both sides are, you know, so this is arguing against my own point that the prophets are generally uh, doing this. I recognize yeah, yeah, exactly. that. I just wanted to, before you say that, I recognize that I've just contradicted myself. Are you making a point that prophets, I think you used the word Manichaean, that they would like to see things put in sort of terms of good and evil, and they're mm -hmm. good, mm -hmm. and everything they just brew up is evil, and wizards are not as inclined to talk in terms like that? I, in, in, in general, though, um, you have a wizard um, type who's running for uh, governor, mm -hmm. uh, Mike Schellenberger, um, who seems very happy in that mode. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he's a real pugilistic type guy. And, uh, That's true. We're getting to that point where one asks uh, in the evening, um, What's next for you? I mean, you're going to go out and blog this book until yeah, you're thoroughly right. tired of its subject. <laughs> so how are, well, you, actually, how are you keeping your interest alive in projects that you might do? Oh, well, I, because this, this book, this is really an idiotic book to write, um, you know, in terms of practicalities, because not only did it, okay, first, I somehow assumed that there would be a biography of Borlaug and Vogue, because they were actually really important, know, yeah. and there wasn't. If, if any of you are freelance writers, do one, please. Um, so I mean, I had to be like a baby biographer and like go into archives and uh, and, and so forth and read all their letters. And that's just it was full of surprises. There's full of stuff I had no idea about yeah. both of them. Yeah, well, I didn't know it either. And then the worst thing was actually, um, so you know, I go to vote and I find his papers, which are in the Denver Public Library. And turns out that because he's a writer, he's made a bunch of there's about a hundred pages of autobiographical jottings. I would think mostly handwritten. And I think, great, I don't have to do any more work. I just got it all right here, because I'm not writing a full-blown biography. It's just mm -hmm. really a couple chapters in this longer book. And so I write it all. And then um, I think, you know, I should probably fact check this just a little bit. Oh. And, um, and so I think, like, so the first thing I think is like, it says, he says his father died when he was a baby. And I think, okay, well, let's get his father's death certificate. And I can't find it. And I look around. I just simply cannot find any record of his, his death. And so I have a friend who's a genealogist who puts me in touch with a professional New York genealogist. And the guy you know, goes, and I, I hire him because I'm, I'm, I'm feeling so incompetent. And his name is Roger Jocelyn, a wonderful guy. And he calls me up a couple days later and says, guess what? He didn't die. <gasps> he ran away with a Tootsie. And there is a lurid paper trail. <laughs> and I think, oh, no. And so then I discovered. You went, oh, yes, you got this. No, no, because oh, it's something like this is going to hijack the book if you do. If you do. So I go, no, no, I don't want to really fight. I just want to get him to the islands, the Guano Islands. And then it turns out this whole other wife that I didn't know about. <laughs> <laughs> So all of this took, and then I, said, then I had this idea that you know um, I should look at how Borlaugians and Votians, since the words I said I wasn't going to use, look at these problems. And so that meant I had to learn about all these um, other. Just don't do write a book like this. 
Well, it completely led you down some, some wonderful Oh, yeah, I learned, a, I learned a lot, but it wasn't, how do you put this, practically speaking, the very best thing that ever happened to the Mann family finances. <laughs> <laughs> Buy this man's book, get it in hardcover. Oh, God. Yeah, I guess that's right. It's like, I'm got. like flinging myself on their mercy, right? <laughs> So, you want to do another book? Is that what you do? You're going to do yeah, something no, I'm else. Gonna, you do I'm a glutton slides. for punishment. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Another book in the, in the prospect? What's, yeah. what's out there? Well, I've got a, a couple ideas. One that I was actually um, mentioned uh, briefly to you. So, this was a setup. You think this is a spontaneous conversation, but uh, it's uh, all carefully yeah, arranged. Yeah, you don't blurt it out. I'll tell them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the basic idea is a, a, a wonderful book came out in 1978 by Ernst Meyer, the great biologist, which is a history of biological thought. Oh. And it's a terrific book, um, but there's never been a successor as far as I know, and uh, a lot has happened to evolutionary thought since then, and so I would like to write, if I could write a book that's half as good as his about, you know, what's happened since then, and it would include, then I would be very happy. Um, so I was thinking of a three-part book, it's Evolution Before Darwin, mm -hmm. you know, all the various sort of proto-evolutionists, Evolution with Darwin would be the mm -hmm. second part, and that's probably the most well-known part, although, in fact, uh, you know, new stuff keeps finding, being turned up. Um, very fortunately, Janet Brown wrote these two absolutely huge biographies that are, um, so I won't have to you know, go as much in the archives, and then Evolution After Darwin, which would be mm -hmm. the substantial uh, part of the book, and this idea that now we understand, thanks to people like Lynn Margulis, the micro world, and mm. all the sort of ideas we had from evolution, which were basically premised on large mammals, are rather different down there, and that's the bulk of evolutionary creativity, and that's really interesting. And um, I One think there's a role for a book like this. One person you look at, by the way, is Chris Thomas, who's gonna be speaking here later mm -hmm. this year who I think has done the sort of best species-type evolution book since Darwin called uh, Inheritors of the Earth. Well, that's a good book, yeah. That's actually, a good yeah. book. And, but it is very much Darwinian-type right. evolution as is going down. The species are figuring out how to deal with us and they're dealing with us mm -hmm. like mad. And that's part of what's going on. So we're driving some species extinct and other species are driving themselves into existence, mm -hmm. thanks in part to us. Anyway, that's part of what's going on. But the microbial stuff, did Lynn ever take on evolution as a... You know, well, she got into the fight with the... Um, she liked to sneer at the neo-Darwinists. Um, well, and she was... An, uh, along she was, with quite a few other categories. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lynn was... Um, she enjoyed... Um, you know, yes. And uh, so part of the, the thing is that... A long knitting needle right up the nostril. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, so she would see a sap like me and think, like, how can I get this guy to squawk and fling, you know? Um, and the weird thing is she was actually pretty nice. Um, <laughs> she just was one of those type yeah, yeah. of people, right? Yeah, really and um, so, you know, their whole thing about uh, the idea is that survival of the fittest and natural selection, she thought, you know, that exists. Obviously, it, it exists. She just didn't think it was nearly as important Right. As, um, as you, and I think over time... Um, as massive collaboration, which a lot of microbes do with right, each other. Right, the symbiotic the type endosymbiosis, of stuff. Endosymbiosis, the mitochondria right. being taken There's, over it's, and becoming it's part of the cells. The, so you know, as she, she used to say, the genes don't care about what your theory is. They're just going to do what they're going to do. And um, so you just have to you know, be prepared that it's just going to be a total soup. So is she by the selfish gene approach to things? No. Say more. Yeah, no, um, she thought that um, this was, well, there's a long argument, but basically she thought this was a perfect example why you need more women in science. 
the unselfish gene, or what are we talking about? No, now? no. Um, it was just this sort of the, the thing about the survival the of the fittest and this sort of chess beating, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, this, this sort of stuff. When in fact, there's many more cooperative, mm -hmm. um, symbiotic, or and also lots of randomness and chance involved in ways that, uh, yeah. they, you know, they, she she hated these sort of just so stories. She yeah, said yeah. the just so stories. That's the one thing that Stephen Jay Gould got right. Um, which she, she was so she was really let people have it. Um, and so she thought that uh, what you needed to do was get away from these, um, st uh, the, the, these stories, which existed primarily in the tiny, cute, but basically unimportant periphery of the biological world that was the mammals. Right. Mm -hmm. You can have fun with this. Oh, yeah. And, it's really, and, uh, it'll be about six years, probably. We want you back to talk about oh, your I, book on evolution. I hope Thank you for coming tonight. <laughs> Thank you. Good to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. You can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.